Moses 1 in its ancient context, the names of Moses as keywords, Moses 125, Book of Moses Essay, number 39. The use of temple names as signposts on the covenant pathway is ancient. It is reflected in the second century account of the early Christian theologian Clement of Alexandria. His account is drawn from a group of initiates, Greek mystai, who describe the three successive names that they understood to have been given to Moses at different junctures of his life. Quote, Joachim, given by his mother at circumcision, Moses, given him by Pharaoh's daughter, and Melchi, a name which he had in heaven, which was given him apparently by God after his ascension. End of quote. Though interpretations of the name Melchi vary, the eminent scholar Second Temple Judaism, Erwin Goodenough, saw it as representing quote, the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, reported in Genesis as being a king and the priest of the Most High God. Going beyond these three names reported in Clement's account, Moses 125 can be seen as the bestowal of a final, fourth name, implied in the divine declaration that Moses is to be, quote, made stronger than many waters. Who were the initiates from whom Clement received this information? It is possible that he received it as part of his own initiation into the mysteries of Christ, an event to which he alludes indirectly in his own writings. Among other things, such mysteries would, would seem to have included unwritten temple teachings not to be shared with new Christian converts or with the world at large. In addition, a controversial letter purportedly written by Clement, discovered by Morton Smith, mentions certain, quote, secret doings and writings that were part of the hierophantic teaching of the Lord that would lead the hearers into the innermost sanctuary of that truth, end of quote, but that were, quote, most carefully guarded, being read only to those who are being initiated into the great mysteries, end of quote. Other alternatives have also been advanced. For example, although Clement names his immediate informants as a circle of religious sevens, some scholars conclude that the ultimate source for this reference was presumably a written document. In support of the idea that the practice of applying a series of sacred names to individuals was known not only by some early Christians, but also hundreds of years earlier in some strands of Second Temple Judaism, we turn to a non-sectarian Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript entitled The Visions of Amram. Texts such as this one might have attracted the attention of groups of Jewish initiates that outsiders called Essenes and Therapeutai, about whom the Philo of Alexandria wrote in treatises with which Clement was very familiar. In one of three examples, this naming pattern included in the visions of Amram, an angel identifies his three names as being Michael, Prince of Light, and Melchizedek, the latter being interpreted as a title that means ruler of righteousness. In further supporting the idea that Michael's third name of Melchizedek is meant as a title rather than as a unique individual name, is that it corresponds to the third name of Moses, as reported by Clement. Intriguingly, a later passage in the visions of Amram seems to portend the giving to Moses of his own names. The relevant line begins with the words, quote, I will tell you your names, end of quote, but unfortunately the text breaks off there and the names are not mentioned elsewhere in the fragments. In this essay, we will argue that the elegantly reflective, multilingual nuances of the series of names and titles ascribed to Moses by Clement's initiates can be seen as variously enriched likenesses of himself, interpreted and amplified to reveal the latent character and identity of the prophet as a god in embryo. 
Although we cannot know whether the report that a particular series of names was given to Moses is historically authentic, the suggestions remain of interest because the meanings of the names are so remarkably apropos. A series of names of this sort would have helped Moses to discover aspects of his past, present, and future destiny, while also enabling him to accomplish his heavenly ascent. It does not seem impossible that the initiates who reported these names may have known that such names were meant to be used as keywords in heavenly or ritual ascent. Below, we will argue that each of the three ciphered names from Moses reported by Clement is rich in meaning when deciphered in light of Moses' premortal and mortal mission. And, remarkably, when the fourth title, Stronger Than Many Waters, foreshadowing Moses' eternal destiny, is appended to the rest, each member of this complete set of four names is arguably present in Moses 1. We'll begin with a brief overview of the function of names as keywords in temple contexts. We will then show how the four names he was purportedly given serve to eliminate Moses' life and mission. Finally, we offer concluding thoughts about patterns of ritual and heavenly ascent. Temple Names as Keywords The idea of keywords has been associated with temples since very early times. In a temple context, the meaning of the term keyword can be taken quite literally. The use of the appropriate keyword or keywords by a qualified worshiper unlocks each one of a successive series of gates, thus providing access to specific secured areas of the sacred space. In temples throughout the ancient Near East, including Jerusalem, different temple gates had different names, indicating the blessing received when entering, the gate of grace, the gate of salvation, the gate of life, and so on, end of quote, as well as signifying, quote, the fitness through due preparation which entrance should have in order to pass through each one of the gates, end of quote. In Jerusalem, the final gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter, very likely referred to, quote, the innermost temple gate, where those seeking the face of God of Jacob would find the fulfillment of their temple pilgrimage. The last gate, like each of those previously encountered, could be opened only to entrants who had passed every prior test. Importantly, these tests were designed not only to demonstrate knowledge relating to specific keywords, but also to assess whether the entrant met the qualifications of moral fitness and experience. These keywords can also be associated with names. As Joseph Smith taught, the new name is the keyword. In this regard, it is important to understand that in each stage of that passage, one was expected not only to know something, but also to be something. Some ancient exegetes went so far as to assert, quote, All ancient traditions agree that the true name of a living thing reflects precisely its nature or its very essence, end of quote. For example, as René Guénon illustrates this particular view, quote, it is because Adam had received from God an understanding of the nature of all living things that he was able to give them names in the Garden of Eden. End of quote. The idea of a strong connection between names and personal attributes is evident in the Old Testament examples of figures such as Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob, who received new names only after they had been sufficiently tested and found worthy of them. Joachim. The first name, Joachim, meaning Yahweh has raised up, is closely associated with the well-known prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 that speaks of a prophet like unto himself that the Lord will later raise up. However, more pertinent to the present discussion than references to later prophets that the Lord would raise up is the question of how the meaning of the name Joachim 
Yahweh has raised up, might be shown as being relevant to Moses himself, he being the one to whom these subsequent figures were likened. While no relevant passages justifying the application of the name to Moses are given in the Bible, these allusions to the meaning of the name appear in Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's translation passages containing the prophecies of Joseph, son of Israel, long prior to Moses' birth. In one of these passages, the Lord declared that he would surely raise up Moses to deliver Israel out of the land of Egypt. End of quote. Thus it is apparent that Joachim, the first name said to have been given to Moses, and which would have been consistent with the premortal foreordination he received in anticipation of his earthly mission, would have been completely at home if it had been explicitly included in Moses 1.41. There the Lord, in subtle wordplay that functions by omission, refers directly to the meaning of the most important element of Moses' first purported sacred name, raise up, without explicitly mentioning the name itself in the English text. Moses. The Hebrew etymology of Moses is given in Exodus 2.10, And she called his name Moses, Moshe, and she said, because it drew him out of the water. End of quote. On the other hand, the commonly accepted Egyptian origin of the name Moses, name Moses means begotten or born. <clears throat> Significantly, the Egyptian form of the name Moses is typically paired with the name of a god. For example, Ramses, Ray is begotten. Tutmos, Thoth, Thoth is begotten. Amos, the moon god, Ah is, is begotten, and so forth. Despite the surface level, level differences between the Hebrew and Egyptian etymologies, it can be shown that the two derivations function very well together. To be drawn from evokes birth imagery of being drawn from amniotic waters. One can virtually substitute the meaning of the Egyptian verb for the meaning of the Hebrew verb in the explanation for Moses' name in translation. Quote, and she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I birthed him from the water. Significantly, the words of Joseph in JST Genesis 50.29 further illuminate the dual derivation of Moses. Quote, for a seer will I raise up to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt, and he shall be called Moses, and by this name he shall know that he is of thy house, for he shall be nursed by the king's daughter, and shall be called her son. End of quote. Finally, it should be observed that Moses' second name, the name he was given by his adopted mother to eat in Egypt, and by which he was known throughout his mortal life, it appears a remarkably twenty-five times within the forty-two verses of Moses 1. As we will see later on, the initial Hebrew and Egyptian meanings of the name Moses that can be seen in Exodus 2.10 anticipate the richer significance of the name that will unfold in Moses 1.25. Melki Erwin Goodenough comments as follows with respect to Melki, the third name of Moses that is reported by Clement. Quote, the significance of Melki is not explained, but it at least suggests the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. End of quote. In this context, we concur not only with Goodenough, but also with Margaret Barker, who goes on to say that Melchizedek, Melchizedek, should be regarded as a title as much as a name. According to Barker, the title, quote, was associated with the original temple priesthood in Jerusalem, and it was a title that the first Christians gave to Jesus. The account of Solomon's enthronement in 1 Chronicles 29 originally described how he became the human presence of the Lord, the King. 
I have begotten you with dew, with the confirmatory anointing. Psalm 110.3 And also the high priest, quote, a priest for eternity, Psalm 110.4 He became Melchi, said king, Sedek, righteous one. In this con- connection, it should be remembered that the blessings of the fullness of the holy priesthood given to Moses and representing the role of a king and priest were originally connected not only with the name of Melchizedek, but rather with the Son of God. Only later was the name of Melchizedek priesthood substituted as a description of this priesthood order, quote, out of reverence or respect to the sacred name of the Son of God, so as to re- avoid its too frequent repetition. Thus, there is no inconsistency in the fact that Moses 6.68 describes an individual who has received the fullness of the priesthood as having become, when divinely ratified, quote, a son of God, end of quote. This description resonates with royal rebirth formula of Psalm 2.7, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee, spoken on the occasion of the Davidic king's enthronement. Thus, we should not be surprised when God's description of Moses as, quote, my son, appears three additional times as Moses one, which we, may, we take, for, for the reasons just mentioned, as being equivalent to his being called Melchizedek. The importance of Moses' name as, quote, a son of God is highlighted by Satan himself when the legitimacy of that title is a subject to the opening controversy in his challenge to the prophet. We further note that the declaration that Moses is a son of God hints at one possible reason why previously in Exodus 2.10 he was given only half a name. Remember that the name Moses is lacking the Theophora prefix that is often present in the names of royal Egyptian figures with similar names like Ramesses, Tutmos, Amos, and so forth. Remember that the names of these figures declared them to have been begotten as one or the other of the Egyptian gods. Only now, in the account of Moses one, as it is revealed that Moses is it revealed that Moses has been begotten with the name of the God of Israel, the heretofore missing Theophoric prefix. As if thou wert God. The closest statement to the phrase as if thou wert God, Moses one twenty five, is in the Bible is found in Exodus seven one. Surprisingly, the verse does not say that Moses was to be like a god to Pharaoh. Rather, the Lord's word to the prophet in Hebrew reads literally, quote, I have made you God to Pharaoh, end of quote. This concept has been difficult for some scholars to accept. For example, Gary Rensberg sees Moses' temporary elevation to the divine plane as violating, quote, a basic tenet of, to the ancient Israelites in order to respond to the exigency of the moment. However, there are both ancient and modern sources that argue that Moses' divine status was neither exceptional nor provisional. Quote, Moses, God, and King Moses as God and King Drawing on Jewish sources, Wayne Meeks has written a classic chapter citing sources that portray Moses as God and King. In some accounts, Moses' divine status is associated with that of Yahweh, For example, the promise to Moses of power over the waters resembles that given to David in Psalm 89.25. Like Moses, David there is depicted as a god, quote, a lesser Yahweh on earth, consistent with the extended discussion by David J. Larson of the enthronement of Moses and other figures in the literature of the ancient Near East. 
In other accounts, Moses' ultimate divine status is compared to Elohim rather than Yahweh. For example, Wayne Meeks finds instances in the Samaritan literature where the name with which Moses was crowned or clothed is Elohim. He further reports that the name of Elohim, conferred on Moses, was distinguished from Yahweh, the name which God revealed to him on Mount Sinai. The theme of God's premortal disclosure of his own name, personal disclosure of his own name to those who approach the final gate to enter his presence, is reminiscent of the explanation of figure 7, facsimile 2, from the book of Abraham. In the prophet's interpretation of that figure, God is described as, quote, sitting upon his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand key words of the priesthood, end of quote. The same concept was operative elsewhere in the ancient Near East. For example, in the old Babylonian investiture liturgy, we might see in the account of the 50 names given to Marduk at the end of Enuma Elish, a description of his procession through the ritual complex in which he took upon himself the divine attributes represented by those names one by one. Ultimately, it seems, he would have passed the guardians of the sanctuary gate to reach the throne of the god Ea, where, as also related in the account, he finally received the god's own name and a consequent fusion of identity with the declaration, quote, He is even as I, end of quote. The rod and word of Moses as symbolic of, the author- of his authority. Of interest in this context is that the rod and the word of Moses are associated with the authority of God through Egyptian and Hebrew wordplay. This wordplay is woven throughout both ancient and modern accounts of the life of Moses, such as the slaying of the Egyptian, the crossing of the sea, and the smiting of the rock. In connection with this idea, Nephi's multilingual puns on rod and word revolve around the polysemy of the Egyptian term for rod or staff, word, and the homonymy of the Egyptian terms with the Hebrew mate, rod, or staff, the latter Hebrew term perhaps meaning derived from the Egyptian former. Moses' repeated use of the word and rod in close proximity brings together the word of God as creative act, word of my power, with power of command over the many waters, and the word of God is scripture. Quote, and he shall smite the waters of the Red Sea with his rod, and he shall have judgment, and shall write the word of the Lord. I will raise up a Moses, and I will give power unto him in a rod, and I will give judgment unto him in writing. Moses the Deliverer Remarkably, the Hebrew derivation of Moses' name is invoked in another elegant literary twist. Moses, who is said in Exodus 2.10 to have been delivered from the water as a weak and helpless infant, is told in Moses 1.25 that he is to be, quote, made stronger than many waters, end of quote. The most obvious allusion here is to the power Moses will be given to divide the Red Sea. However, the phrase also recalls God's doing of the waters at creation, particularly in light of the phrase that follows, quote, as if thou wert God. Moreover, as God himself explains the significance of Moses' name, he links it with one of his own titles, Almighty. Fittingly, the divine name of Almighty in Moses 1, 4, and 25 is also closely tied to the demonstration of God's power over the waters of chaos as the first act of creation, as well as the divine destruction of the Egyptian army. 
Consistent with this idea, ancient sources universally witnessed that the name Moses, rather than suggesting the passive meaning, one who is drawn or pulled out of the water, as one would expect in the context of the naming scene in Exodus, is instead vowed as a pseudo-active participle, suggesting his future as one who will draw or pull others out of the water. The many waters or great waters ultimately obeyed Moses' command as if he were God as he provided temporal deliverance to the Israelites at the time of the Exodus. Moses also used the same divine authority, the authority with which one draws or pulls, Moshe, from the water, to deliver the Israelites spiritually through baptism. Elder Bruce R. McConkie commented on the idea as follows, Moses, mighty, mighty Moses, acting in the power and authority of the Holy Order, gathered Israel once. What is more fitting than for him to confer upon mortals in this final dispensation the power and authority to lead Latter-day Israel out of Egyptian darkness through a baptismal Red Sea into their promised Zion, end of quote. In summary, speaking of Christ as the pre-mortal prototype not only for Moses, but also for all those who are foreordained to priestly offices and subsequently ordained in mortal life, the Gospel of Philip suggests that the general meaning, symbolism, and sequence of the ordinances has always been the same. Quote, he who was begotten before everything was begotten anew. He who was once anointed was anointed anew. He who was redeemed in turn redeemed others. End of quote. Thus, in the de- declaration that Moses is to be made stronger than many waters, God is saying that Moses, the delivered, will now become Moses, the Deliverer. Conclusion We have seen how the four names that were said to have been given to Moses fittingly summarize the whole of his divinely appointed mission. Joachim, a personal name that is first in sequence, anticipated the mission that he was raised up to fulfill in the pre-mortal world. The second name, Moses, also a personal name, reflected the dual role he played in his, during his mortal life as an Egyptian prince and a Hebrew prophet. The title Melki was bestowed upon Moses after his ascension when he became a son of God, beholding the fullness of the higher priesthood, and in likeness of Melchizedek, becoming a king and a priest forever in that holy order. And his final fourth name was a title that represented the name of God the Father himself. Philo Judeus likewise argued that Moses was not only a prophet, priest, and king, but also, like Jesus, a God having been changed into the divine through his initiation into the mysteries, end of quote. Elsewhere, it has been argued that the narrative of Moses' visions in chapter 1 of the Book of Moses fits squarely into the ancient literary genre of heavenly ascent. But there is evidence that the symbolism of this journey may have also been enacted in various forms of ritual ascent among Jews and early Christians. For example, in his discussion of late Second Temple Jewish mysticism, Erwin Goodenough, Summarize Philo's description of two successive initiations within a single mystery, constituting a lesser mystery in contrast with a greater, as follows, quote, For general convenience, we may distinguish them as the mystery of Aaron and the mystery of Moses. The mystery of Aaron got its symbolism from the great Jerusalem cultists. The mystery of Moses led the worshiper above all material association. He died to the flesh, and in becoming reclothed in a spiritual body, moved progressively upwards, at last ideally to God himself. The objective symbolism of the higher mystery was the holy of holies within the ark, a level of spiritual experience which was no normal part of even the high priesthood. 
Only once a year could the high priest enter, enter there, and then only, when so blinded by incense that he could see nothing of the sacred objects within. The mystery of Aaron was restricted to the symbolism of the Aaronic high priest. End of quote. According to Goodenough, Philo had himself been initiated under Moses, in other words, received the mysteries of the higher priesthood, and it seems to me quite likely that the elder Samuel, who built the synagogue of Dura Europos, may have been so initiated also. Hinting at the possibility of such ritual in the synagogue at Dura Europos, Goodenough noted, quote, in a side room were benches and decorations that marked the room as probably one of cult, perhaps an inner room where special rites were celebrated by a select company. So far as structure goes, it might have been the room for people especially initiated in some way. End of quote. Bradshaw has written at length how the Ezekiel mural at the synagogue might be seen as a witness of ancient Jewish mysteries of the sort that Philo described. The controversial idea of initiation rites at the Judura Europa Synagogue received support from Crispin Fletcher Lewis's subsequent findings on what he calls the, quote, angelomorphic priesthood of the Qumran community. Of equal significance is David Calabro's research hinting that the Christian church at Dura Europos, just down the road from the synagogue, may have likewise forgotten partaken of teachings and ordinances of an esoteric nature, including baptism for the dead. In all this, Moses was not only the model disciple, but also the model leader. Observes Old Testament scholar C.T.R. Hayward, Philo saw nothing improper in describing Moses as a hierophant, like the holder of that office in the mystery cults of Philo's day. Moses was responsible for inducting initiates into the mysteries, leading them from darkness to light, to a point where they are enabled to see God. End of quote. Hayward's view echoes the teachings of Doctrine and Covenants 84, 21-23, And without the ordinances thereof, and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and sought diligently to sanctify his people, that they might behold the face of God.